0: Welcome to the Novel Discourse podcast where we discuss great stories and how they're told. Today we bring to you a conversation with Mike DeLucia. Mike has an incredible resume. He's been a teacher, he is a screenwriter, and he's also been an award-winning novelist. He's got a few books out right now, Being Brothers, Madness, Settling a Score, Boycott the Yankees was one that's got him on the national airwaves. But it's his latest novel, Born for the Game, that we wanted to talk mostly about today. But our conversation tangents from sports and why we play sports and the lessons that sports can teach us to just his upbringing in New York and his travels around the world. So you're not going to want to miss this conversation. If you want to find some of Mike's works, you can go to com. That's Mike, D-E-L-U-C-I-A. So without further ado, here's Mike. Where, where are you calling from?
1: I live in, uh, well, I was born and raised in, in the Bronx, and then I moved up to the suburbs uh, in the 90s and recently i got married five years ago and now moved up i mean this couldn't be any different from the bronx i mean i I, i'll never i i you know i appreciate some of it my wife grew up on an old farm and it's in it's in new york it's near stewart airport it's where orange county choppers is if you know that tv program
0: i i don't know it but my but it's the kind of show that my brother would watch so i'll just have to um, you know it's all
1: trees (laughs) and all that sort of thing and uh you know, I told her, I like, I'm like, look, it's up to me, I will cement everything here, but I am not spending my weekends mowing four acres of grass. I'm telling you that right now. So it's either we get a service or you do it or we pay. I don't, I'm not doing it, which I never have stepped on that machine yet. Yeah. That's
0: good. That's a big win. So if it was up to you, I mean, I don't want to uh, get you in trouble, but if it was up to you, would you be a little bit closer um, to the
1: city? You know, you know, after I moved out of the Bronx, I moved into another house. And then after that, I moved into a condo. And the condo life suits me really well. We had a front yard. We had a backyard. And they did everything. They shoveled the snow. They mowed the lawn. They clipped the bushes. They they do everything. They wash the windows. They That's what I want. You know, I want the convenience. At this point in my life, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I it's not fun doing all that work. So I'd rather work on stuff that I want to work
0: on. Yeah yeah i remember the days when my dad was like do the yard work it'll build character i'm over the building character yeah. time like let's right. just <laughs> i'll just pay somebody a little bit of cash to, to do it you know uh once every other week just depending on how fast it's growing um yeah totally worth the money i agree there um i one thing that i had to talk to you about is first of all i was looking at um mm-hmm. lake george oh my gosh gorgeous i had never heard of lake george now i, I felt kind of dumb afterwards because it's it's huge. Where are you, Where are you from? Map. I'm calling from Dallas. So anything outside of like upstate New York, I have no bearing on Yeah, Lake George is gorgeous. Um, yeah, I mean, it is. It looks incredible. We've got a bunch of lakes down here, but it's but we don't have the topography. So it's like lake, and then maybe a little bit of an upslope. But there, it's almost like you're in the middle of the mountains, essentially. The lake right?
1: George is gorgeous. It's about four hours, three and a half hours from me, and it's it's fabulous. It's it, it really. I mean, it, you know, you've seen it, so I don't have to tell you
0: it's it looks so cool you guys have upstate new york just gorgeous i need to come up there at some point i we were we were going to go to maine uh last summer we were we wanted to go do something abroad but then we we were like well we really want to go do something domestic because of covid and then they were just making it impossible to travel to the northeast so we ended up doing colorado but we need to make it up to the northeast hey
1: you come up here you give me a call and uh come to that you can come to the farm here
0: um we have we have yeah. a hot
1: tub. We've got a nice screened-in porch, a uh, nice deck. So, and and it's
0: you don't know how much the hot tub is a selling point for me. <laughs> I'm I'm all about the hot tub. Um, I have to ask, so or my wife would be upset with me. You said that you in your bio you talked about you like to travel mm-hmm. a lot. Um, have you been able to travel much with COVID? And if so, where have you been able to go lately? No,
1: no travel in COVID. I haven't done anything. In fact, um, I have a trip planned and it's been postponed twice. And it is, because I retired from teaching and, I, and I, I ran a travel club. So, you know, we used to go all over the world and it was it was fabulous. And uh, we have Prague, Budapest, uh, Krakow, and Berlin. It's been on the table for two years. This is the third year. They're thinking we're gonna get it in this June. But I haven't done any traveling at mm-hmm. all. I was in Italy. Actually, it had to do with my the, the book Madness. Because all of my books, all mm-hmm. of my books except the Yankees book, well, the three books anyway, I write screenplays. I write the screenplay first, and then I and then I write the novel. Because my real thing is making movies. That that's what I want to do. Um, I've always wanted yeah. to do it. It's why I'm a writer. So um, I had a director in Italy who was interested in making it, and so you know, my wife and I went to Rome and we met him and we hung out for a weekend, and that was literally on the cusp of COVID. That's when Italy was infected and no one knew it. So I picked up, mm-hmm. I picked up COVID while I was there. Um, you know, in the first round.
0: Oh wow! So that was like uh, late February or so. Um, I I March. went
1: there at the end of January. So when I came back, oh, okay. when I came back, I had the flu, and you know, I went to the. I hadn't had the flu, uh, you know, when I was a schoolteacher. Now I didn't have the flu from when I was like ten. You know, I've just never gotten the flu. So I thought, wow, this is really weird. So uh, I went to the doctors and they said, you know, you tested negative for the flu, but you look like you have the flu. So they gave me Tamiflu and I went home with that. And, you know, it was kind of reminiscent of that first strain. Uh, It was mostly abdominal. Uh, I felt more nauseous and tired. And uh, Mm -hmm. now I just I'm, I'm just getting over COVID now. And it was more in line with the regular symptoms of, of this Omicron, you know, uh, just like a really bad cold. And I'm still not completely over, but pretty much over.
0: Yeah. Your story is identical to my dad's. I got married, uh, right. I got married. We barely got ours in. It was the beginning of January and he had traveled to Washington at the end of the new year. Right. So this is, and and remember Seattle was kind of one of the hot spots for the United States at the beginning. Um, and he met with people that had traveled to China oh. in like November. Oh, wow. And then he came back and kind of had exactly what you described. They, he felt like he might've had the flu with kind of more the nauseous side of the flu. And then he, he did all the tests and he tested negative for everything. So my wedding was the original super spreader. Oh, wow. Um, I'm, I'm half kidding. So don't, don't hold me. accountable. <laughs> no, I was,
1: I'm with you. I probably infected people myself, you know, but who knew, you know, who knew?
0: Yeah. I'm going to put you right under the gun. Uh, favorite place that you've been to um, both traveling and then maybe if you could move somewhere, what are your, what are your places that come to mind?
1: Italy, my favorite, my favorite place. I like it even better than here. I'm not saying I would move there, but I would live there for six months out of the year or five months out of the year. Um, I love Europe, but Italy is my, is my favorite place to go. Uh, and I've been, I've yeah. been there a dozen times. I have a lot of family there. Um, there's still parts of Italy that I want to see that I have not been to, you know, more on the off the, you know, off the grid kind of places, you know, um, especially in the South. And I haven't been to Sicily and I want to go there. Uh, but without a yeah. doubt, I, I love Italy.
0: So many different cool spots. I, I'm, I'm in the same boat. We've, I've been to Rome, Venice, uh, Florence, and then went right by Lake Como, but that's mm-hmm. about it. Um, so many other places I'd love to go to. Um, you you kind of hit it on one of the, the things that I wanted to talk to you about, I, I, I'm 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 going down a lot in my conversation because you talked about the screenplays. Um, I read your first, the first page for Born for the Game. It was like three lines of dialogue. And I was like, does this guy have a background in writing screenplays? Because this is very <laughs> good dialogue. It, it was no campiness to it. It wasn't like overly, there wasn't a ton of exposition. In it. it was just very like, very well done dialogue. And then sure enough, I, I read your bio and I'm like, okay he has a background in theater has a background in in building screenplays um so my first question to that is walk us through kind of how you got into that because i know you you have a little bit of background in theater just talk about kind of how that started and and then where that's kind of led you into writing novels
1: i was always you know grew up in the bronx like i said and it was it was uh you know you walked out your door and it was all it was sports that that's what was happening it was all interaction it was all street games the 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 neighborhood was thick with kids, you know, and it was handball, stoop ball, wiffle ball, stickball, uh Johnny on the pony, you know, um, you know, all all kinds of sports going on all the time. And that's what we did. We lived in that environment. Um, and then, um, in the seventh grade, um, a teacher in the school put on a an a uh God spell. I don't know if you ever heard of that play. And uh Mm-mm. I remember going down, a teacher sent me on a, on like a mission, you know, to go down to the office with a note or something. And, and it was going on, they were showing it for the school. It was like the lower grades. And then we would see it the next day. And I walked into the auditorium and I, it was in the middle of this huge production number. And I walked out there and I, and I looked at what they were doing and I was, I'll never forget the moment I was, that was a life changing moment for me. Cause I said, I, I don't know that I said it in words, but. I want to do that. And, and I was bitten by the bug at that moment. And, you know, I played sports after that, but sports began to fall off. Um, and theater began to, to build up. I was in the next musical the following year and it just went from there. I, I was in, in, in high school, you know, my father, you know, growing up, my father was very big on, on a lot of things like, you know, don't smoke, you know, uh, you've got to go to college. You know, he uh, had certain rules. You didn't know anything about college. You never went to college. But we had to go, and, and I didn't want to go. I didn't want to go to college. I wanted to be an actor. So, I, you know, he forced me to go to school. I went to school for um, not even a year. I, I was thrown out because my grades were so bad. Because, I, you know, I was treating it like 13th grade, and I didn't even want to go. So it was college, and, you know, the... So they, they threw me out and uh, for academic uh, you know, reasons, and I said, well, I'm going to go to acting school. My father said, okay, well, I was paying for your college, but I'm not paying for your acting school. You could pay for it on your own. So you know, uh, I took the trains down to Manhattan. I think it was three trains to get down to acting school, and I went down to acting school, and I absolutely loved it. It was, it was fabulous. And, uh, you know, and then I made a decision that altered another decision that altered my life. I got married really young, you know, under the, uh, you know, thinking that I'd be able to do it all, that I'd be able to be married and be, have an acting career and, you know, cut a long story short, there's no thing that you can do that's big. And I'm talking when I say big, I mean, become a pro athlete, become an actor, become a pro musician. You know, any of those those things, you cannot divide your time. You know, your girlfriend, mm-hmm. your boyfriend, your job, everything has to be that. You're married to your, you know, to whatever it is that you're trying to pursue, whatever that thing is. So around, I guess I was around 22, 23, you know, I decided that I, I didn't have the time to go down to my auditions. You know, I didn't have the time to really you know, study like I want the way I wanted to because I was in the Bronx and, and that was in Manhattan and it was okay when I was single, but when I was married and paying bills and then all of a sudden, you know, pregnancies coming along, you know, I decided that I was going to write my way in, like Sylvester Stallone. I had never written anything before, but I was going to be the next, you know, Sylvester Stallone. As you can see, if you if if the camera picks up, you know, my Rocky my rock in the background, in the background yeah. and. And, iconic and wait there's another rocky around here somewhere where is it the camera's like all kind it's all messed up here um
0: yeah i'm trying to read all everything you've got a lot of uh I guess memorabilia what high
1: my other rocky
0: thing he looked too young i couldn't recognize him in yeah, that photo i've,
1: that was I've the got problem. that from the 70s by the way so So I decided I was going to write my way in. So I had no idea what I wanted to write about, but I told the family, you know, told the family at dinner, you know, where my my wife and I went to my my parents' house, you know, we're Italian, so we had that two o'clock, you know, know, pasta dinner and everything. And, you know, I said, I'm going to do the, I'm going to write, you know, a movie and I'm going to star in it. And my father said, what are you going to write about? And I said, I have no idea, but I'm I'm going to write something. And um, he said, I have the perfect idea for you. Perfect story. I said, really, what's that? He said, it's the greatest basketball player that ever lived. So I was like, who? He said, Hank Lewis Eddy. And I said, Hank Lewis Eddy? If he's the greatest basketball player that ever lived, how come I don't know who he is and no one else has ever heard of him? He goes, that's why it's such a great story, because nobody knows. But he changed the whole game. He like he made basketball into the sport it is today. I read an article on him, and I've always you know, wondered about this guy. So... I said, okay, it's it's something to start with. So I went downtown to the library in Manhattan because there was no internet back then. There was no such thing as home computers. And for two weeks, I sat in that library from morning until night, basically researching a ghost. And all of a sudden, through microfilms, I started to find these articles in the newspapers about this phenom. Turns out, That the story was unbelievable, that he actually did revolutionize basketball. He's responsible for March Madness, and he's responsible for the NBA indirectly. Because he took basketball from being Hmm. a boring sport. There was no NBA when he played. He played in the 30s. Because basketball was a filler sport between football and baseball seasons. Believe it or not, they only scored like 25, 30 points a game in a basketball game. So it wasn't that exciting. This guy was the first person to score 50 points in a game by himself. He absolutely flipped the game on its heels. He was a trailblazer. The things that they said about him, the things that he did, he was the, he was the first person to shoot with one hand, an absolute phenom. So I, I, I wrote the first version of this screenplay. Um, I didn't even know how to type. I wrote it out, you know, and, and pr- I printed it, you know, uh, you know, by hand with a pencil. And then over the years, as kids came and so on and so forth, you know, I shelved it for years, but I always had the idea, you know. And then I went back to college at 40, took a screenwriting class, and that's where I really kind of, you know, put it together. I sent it out to a bunch of people. But when you don't know anybody and you're not a name, you know, you're it literally goes from the mail to the to the person's assistant and into the garbage because they get scripts mm-hmm. every day, all day all the time. Yeah. Unless they have a friend of theirs that says, Hey, this is a good work or an agent comes and says, Hey, I got a hot property right here. They don't read it. They don't have the time to read it.
0: Yeah. That goes right into like, I've had people ask me what's the most frustrating part of writing. Is it like coming up with the story? They think that's the hardest part. Like, how do you even think of these things? No, that's not the hard part. The hard part is getting somebody in power that can make a decision to read your book. Right. It's just, is. And then if it's not that, it's, it's just the grassroots effort of marketing. And do you have the time and money for that? And most mm-hmm. people don't. And that's why, you know, you, we, we have the indie market that we do. But it's just crazy. Though. Dude, you so know. I couldn't imagine doing it, you know, with, like, just mailing it to people. That seems even more difficult than reaching out on, on Twitter yeah, or something. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Um, so, you know, I, I, I became a high school English teacher. And then, um, you know, I, I had this story in my head. It was actually Born for the Game. I had it in my head from the 70s. I decided I was going to write that as a movie. And so um, I I outlined it, had it ready to go. And um, then I got this idea. I just got so infuriated with the Yankees because I'm a lifelong Yankees fan. I grew up in the Bronx. I've said it probably four times already. You know, we used to go to Yankees games. My mom would give us like two bucks. You take a train, go to Yankee Stadium. If you got there early enough, the players actually walked in and signed autographs. You know, it wasn't like they was signed up in a contract. Or they, they weren't allowed to give you autographs. You know, they would sign your, you know, your stuff, um, you'd sit in the bleachers for 75 cents, you know, buy popcorn, and still have money to go back home. And, and we went to the mm-hmm. game all the time. My father would even load everybody up in the car and go, it was a fan friendly, everybody there, it was this camaraderie in the stadium. And then when they ripped it down, which I was pissed about, uh, and they build this new stadium and they fill it with suits. You know, they fill it with corporate. And that's not the real fan base. To To go to a game today, yeah. you, you know, it costs you with a family. You want decent seats, not even great seats. It's going to cost you six, seven hundred bucks by the time you park, by the time you buy yeah. set, tickets, by the time you get food. It's a huge amount of money. And baseball shouldn't be that. So I, I, I was really infuriated. I wrote, you know, this expose. Well, Boycott the Yankees, a call to action by a lifelong Yankees fan. And it's all about, you know, what baseball used to be like before free agency, what it was like growing up when I was a kid and what it turned into and how greed and ego is destroying it. So I actually got on national television with that book, which, you know, was pretty cool for somebody who had never written a book before. Um, yeah. And, um, and and that took me two years to write because I was a teacher. I was mostly doing it in the summer. You know, I was doing it all year long, but, you know, it's hard when you're working. Teaching is tough, you know, especially English teacher. You're grading papers after work. It's a lot of writing. It's a lot of reading. And then I decided, you know, a couple of years later that I would I would write, you know, Born for the Game. So and then I said, you know what? I'm not going to write that. I'm going to take my screenplay madness and I'm going to turn it into a novel, historical fiction novel. And that is how I'm going to get it made into a movie. That is going to yep. be an easy way because I don't have to mail it out to anybody anymore. It's going to be available to buy yep. and it's going to be a book. So I, I did that and believe it or not, I've had people interested in Madness ever since it came out. I've been in, in two rounds of negotiations with that already. One with a very very popular, very famous actor and the, the Italian director that I went to Italy with the budget is too high on an independent level unless you're somebody really, really yeah. important. Because it's like a $40 million budget. And then, you know, okay. a friend of mine said, you know, why don't you write – because that was kind of the stumbling block. A friend of mine says, well, why don't you write like, like a, a low-budget movie? And then if somebody's interested in madness, you could say, well, you know, if that's too much money, I've got this too. So I decided to write Born for the Game. Uh, I decided to write Being Brothers. It was based on a short story I re- I had written in college, you know, based on, you know, my experiences of growing up in the 1970s in Little League. So then I wrote the screenplay first, and then I adapted it into the novel. So whenever I write one book, I'm writing two books. Because first I write the screenplay, yeah. and before I, pre- you know, then I write the novel. So, uh, and then finally after being brothers, I finally wrote... Born for the Game, which I wanted to write before I wrote, you know, the first book. And, uh, you know, luckily I had lost the outline that I had written and uh, kind of started from scratch, but had all the memories in my mind uh, from when I had, you know, the original thoughts 40 years ago.
0: Yeah. One of the questions I had about Born for the Game was like, there's so many elements to it that are unique about like the character choices um, and then obviously the plot where Ryan, Ryan is the, yes. is the player, mm-hmm. right? Is that correct? Where she's a girl and not the boy like they expected. And I was going to ask how much of that was outlined, but you're not only outlining, you are writing a screenplay and then a novel. I don't think I've ever heard that before. Was that recommended to you or is that something you came up with? Something I did first
1: head? because, first of all, it's harder to write a screenplay than as a novel because you're, you're handcuffed mm-hmm. in a screenplay. You can, you can only write yep. 120 pages and that's pushing it. It's a minute a page it's 120 minutes and most movies today aren't aren't two hours anymore they're like an hour and hour and 30 minutes an hour and 40 minutes you know that's 140 pages uh that's a, yeah. that's um 90 that's like 90 pages 100 pages so you're locked in and you also have to be cautious about characters and locations everything costs money you know the more characters you put in you know, the more money it's going to cost. The, you know, they want to make movies as cheap as possible and make as much money as possible on them. So that's why I do it in that yeah. order. Because then I can just open up in the novel. I could, I don't have to worry about page count. I, although I try and make my novels where somebody could literally read it in a day or two. I don't want somebody to pick up my book yeah. and say, oh my God, this is going to be like, you know, a three month, you know, investment. You know, I make it so that they move, you know, you can get in and out of them in and, and, and a day if you really wanted to, if you got hooked. You know, two days, three days, and, you know, there you go, bam. I love
0: that. Yeah, I noticed that in your dialogue, but I also notice it in everything else. Just economy of words is key. Just making sure that the story is moving along and that people aren't getting bogged down in description that doesn't matter, right? Because people aren't, most of the time, people aren't reading books for flowery description. There there's mm-hmm. some genres for that, but... Um, no, that was one thing I loved about. About did you uh, read the whole? Did the you Yankees. read the whole thing? Going back, I'm I'm not completely done with it yet, so I couldn't even even if I wanted to start talking spoilers with okay. you, I, I couldn't. Um, so we'll let the audience um have that for themselves. Um, going back for a second to boycotting the Yankees, I think that's such a fascinating story because when I when I heard that, I, I the first thing I thought was that that is like for for my teams, it's like every. Dallas Cowboys dream is to like write a scathing hate piece on like the play calling or like what Jerry Jones is doing or whatever. I know everybody has their hot sports takes pun attended. Um, But you didn't write it for these kind of like things that you would call in for a radio station for that are super, they weren't like very surface level issues. They weren't materialistic issues about like play calling. Like I mentioned there, it's very much like no, the entire facet and skeleton of what this team should represent for the city is being yes. destroyed, right? And I'm I'm curious, did you get a lot of pushback from the Yankees or other fans or were people that read your book were they generally supportive of the notions? How did that kind of play you out? You
1: know, it's it's a funny thing and and people love talking smack. People love talk, but people when it comes to yeah. action, then, you know, then you're on your own. People very seldom actually go to action. Uh, everybody I talked to had the same. Oh yeah, the price is so expensive, and oh it sucks. It used to be better, you know. Of course, you thirty dollars to park your car, and you know, you know, and they're paying these guys too much money, and all the complaining in the world. And I'm like, I'm like, I'm going to start a movement that's going to go across baseball. It's going to go across because we're going to just boycott until they have to lower the until they have to lower the prices but yeah again big talk big difference between talk and action when I actually wrote the book people get crazy you can't even say anything about two Yankees fan you can't say anything bad like it's like it's like you're saying something about their mama you know like they don't even want to hear it like they're like some people freaking out like you know and I'm like dude I'm not I'm not a Mets fan. I'm not a Boston Red Sox fan. I'm a Yankees fan. I love the Yankees more than you. I mean, yeah. maybe you love them, but I don't think anybody loves them more than me. They might love them. as You might love them as much as me, but I'm doing it for us. I'm doing it to bring the fans back into the stadium. That's why I'm doing this. Right.
0: Well, what's, what's crazy to me is I would, I mean, I'm not a crazy big baseball fan, but and what I've seen or what I've noticed over the years is it would seem to me that the most rabid baseball fans would be the traditionalists, the ones that would agree with you that they need to keep the purity of the game and keep prices down and things like that. I'm kind of surprised that the most rabid responses came from people that are like, no, like throw up the extra advertisements, hike up the prices, right, you know. Right. That's That's kind of interesting.
1: Yeah, and the Yankees did know about it. And I know they know about it because – Um, A couple of reasons. Um, One, I had some newspapers do some stories on the book. And when I was on national television on America's Newsroom, um, one of the newspapers called up the Yankees and said, hey, what do you feel about this? You know, this guy wrote this book, and now he's on national television. And and they said, uh, no comment. So that's one one way I knew they knew about the book. The other thing is, all of a sudden, they started coming out with all of these package deals after that. And I was having people email me and said, Mike, I think they're listening to you. I think they want to nip this in the bud. So they started coming up with all of these packages.
0: They were like trying to give you nice seats to get you to shut me. up? Not um, me.
1: Like they were presenting them to the fans. Like in other words, hey, we're going to oh. have this, you know fan day, you know, coming, you know, and we're going to reduce the price of the tickets. And they were advertising it. So, you know... Was it because of me? It's possible. They're good business people. They were probably thinking, you know what, we don't, we want to turn around and say, what are you talking about? Here we, we have all these we have all these deals. You know, look at what we've been doing. Yankees are are if they're one yeah. thing, they're good business people. So that 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 was how yeah. that worked out. But you know, I mean, the average the average indie writer sells between twenty five and fifty books, especially on their first book, because that's when you exhaust. Family and friends, and there's no one else to go to after that. I sold yeah. over 400 copies of Boycott the Yankees, so for me it was a big win. You know, I, I knew nothing about the industry, I knew nothing about you know promote. I did it all on my own, and I sold over 400 copies, and I was I was thrilled. If the average person sells 25 to 50 copies, man, I did really well. Um, so I was you know happy. I made I was on national television. I was on a really popular um live radio program in New York City called Drive at Five with Curtis Sleewa. Because Curtis Lewa felt exactly the way I did. Huge Yankees fan. And he saw an article on me in one of the papers and he you know, his agent called me and wanted me to be on the show. So um I was pretty happy with what I did. You know, it was nice. That's yeah. so
0: cool. Yeah. I would I mean, again, like I said, there's definitely some sports things. In my life, that have happened over the years, that I'm just like, man, I would love to get on the radio and just give them my two cents about it. But um, have you thought about are there are there any other topics that you've, I mean, seeing the success that you had for boycott the Yankees, have you thought about is there anything else that's happened either close to your life or close to other sports that you've thought about? Man, I could I could write a similar piece that maybe would be have that similar you success. You
1: know, um, not really. I'm more kind of into I'm more kind of into novels right now. You know, madness is historical fiction, yep. but you know I'm kind of more into, into, into novels. I mean, I, I, I do have this idea of writing another piece that has nothing to do with baseball. It just has to do with, um, with life decisions and, and um, you know, what it takes to become um, successful in whatever you do, um, and, what, and, and and especially about college and money. And and, you know, um, Mm -hmm. I have some really, you know, interesting, you know, ideas about another scam that's going on. And that's that's college tuition. It's another scam. We're the only country in the world. Yeah. The only country in the world where college tuitions are what they are. There's something wrong with that picture. And if people can't figure that out, I don't I don't get it. You know people in this country are handing over life savings to go to college, and you know there's something mm. that could be done about that um but anyway that's that it's yeah. not sport related
0: it's yeah. awful my wife um went to a private school for her um, doctorate and she could have gone to other places that were less expensive and it's just like you look at you know she I mean she does well, but you look at what her and her peers are earning and you look at like the amount of tuition you're just like man if we if she wasn't married right and like trying to support herself while paying that off is just like how could somebody do that and then you and that's not even a degree that or you know we're not even talking about some there's there, there's professions that earn less than somebody that has a doctor right and so i just don't know how people do it it's crazy um i agree it is a it's a scary bubble man <laughs> like uh, I could go on a huge tangent about that, but you, you did. Bring, yeah, we
1: could, that'd be, a, that'd be for another. Yeah. Day.
0: You did bring up something really interesting because I noticed in your prologue um, for born in the game, this quote, and I'm going to paraphrase, but uh, you said, what does it take to be the greatest at of anything? Someone has to be the best. Why not me? Why not you? And I think that's, that's such an interesting concept as somebody who played sports as well. And obviously like I'm into writing and I, have that competitive juice right it's such an interesting concept about what it takes to be great i mean that's that's what the the last dance kind of tried to answer right is and we actually did an episode recently on um have you ever seen the movie uh nightcrawler no the other one that came to mind was black swan and then the other one was um whiplash all these films about just like people pursuing greatness and like pushing themselves to the to the nth level um and I think that we as a society, we're so, especially younger generations are so, everything has to be instant from like our social media habits to like ordering food on your phone and it doesn't get to your house in 10 minutes. And you're like, what is wrong with this? Like, why, why isn't this full meal in front of me in 10 minutes that and it's even in the publishing world, right? Where folks want to write a, a bestseller on their first stab, and they're frustrated when they don't, it just kind of carries over in anything. And I think that we, myself included, forget the work that it takes to be great. Yeah,
1: and if you want to be the best. Ba- and, and uh, you know, as I wrote in that, and that's in the forward of that, of, of Born for the Game, a, a, yeah. a lot has changed. You know, when I first had the concept for this, for this story, um, it was almost nothing like what the story turned out to be 40 years later. It kept evolving in my mind over the years. But the one thing that never changed was what does it take to be the best? What does it take to be the best of uh, uh, better than anybody else? You know, that's that's a dream and a fantasy that all people have. All people want to be the best. They want to be the best singer. They want to be the best. You know, whatever it might be, it's it's a popular fantasy. But again, it doesn't just happen, you know, magically in your imagination. You know, it's easy to predict yourself on stage, you know, singing lead, you know, singing lead with 50,000 people, you know, in front of you rocking out. But the work it takes to get there, what does it take to do that? I've watched and it's just part of my, you know, who I am. I watch a lot of successful people on YouTube. I, I listen to them, and I listen to what it takes. Nobody, it, it, every single person who's, who's achieved greatness had to be brought to their knees. It's never, been, it's never been a smooth ride. It's been, it's a grind. It's a grind, and it takes talent, and it takes dedication more than anything else. Hard work, discipline, self-discipline, Ryan needed those things. You know, if you get to the part where Ito, you know, basically her mentor, you know, is he's constantly on her. It's like, Ryan, you have to develop your mind. You, you cannot compete against men. You cannot be better than men unless you develop your mind. You know, you've got the physical, but you're not going to win without your mind. And that is the mind is everything. It's, it's no matter... You don't do anything mm-hmm. in life. You don't achieve anything in life unless you learn how to do it in your mind. That's really what it comes down to. And it's really the the, the case with, with everything.
0: 100%. There's a um, – the first thing that comes to mind is there's a – I don't know if you follow golf whatsoever. Um, there's a golfer who is really good. His name is Brooks Kapka, and he has this – he has this really – too cool for school mantra. He's always like in the press, whenever he, they're asking him about his like workout routine or how much he practices, he always downplays it. He thinks, I think he thinks it's cool mm-hmm. to be naturally good, which I get, but it's almost to the dangerous level where every answer about what did you do this off season? He's like, Oh, I don't know. I just hung out with friends. I don't ever play golf on the weekends. Like I, I like I never touch a club when I'm not on tour and it's not true because there's, proof that states the otherwise so it's a lie but then also it's so dangerous for people that are watching like young kids because man i i've seen it like in my whether it's sports or people that are writing like people just want that instant win that they think that it's they think it's cool when things come easy to them right and so when i watch somebody like michael jordan talk about how hard it was for him or i watch tiger woods talk about how much he works like i think there's there's almost a um, it's 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 not very high up on the like as like as far as value systems. It's not, you know, anything like integrity. But I do think there is a place for being honest and upfront about how hard you had to work for something. I think it's I, I wish we had more people do that instead of instead of tote their easy wins, I guess. is, is... Yeah. And and,
1: and in, in another one of my books and being brothers, um, there's a line in there. It's about two brothers who grow up one brother's you know, two and a half years old than the other brother, and they accidentally wound up on the same little league team. And, you know, the, the, the younger guy loses his confidence, you know, and the older brother being the older brother, and, and he's also the most gifted athlete in the neighborhood in the league. You know, so to play under that shadow mm-hmm. only destroys the younger brother and erodes his confidence more and more and more until by the end of the season – he thinks he's he's awful. He just wants Little League to be over so that he could never play it again. You know, and at the end his father, you know, wow. goes over to him and the older brother, you know, was carried away by the by the team already, you know, before the game started and, and the, the father, you know, says to him, he goes, What you did this year was astounding. And the kid looks at him, he's like, What are you talking about? He said, What your brother did I'm so proud of him but I'm more proud of you and the kid's like come on dad you know stop you know and he said no what Sal does comes easy to him what you did riding it out dealing with all that all that pressure sitting on the bench but you came you came every week and you tried and I know and you didn't quit and I know you're going to be successful in life because you don't quit you know, and, 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 you know, that's really what it comes yeah. down to in the end. You know, the other brother, you know, was easy for him. He was the best. It came easy. And, and, and you know, at the end, you see the differences between the two of them because, you know, at the end of the story, uh, there's dialogue about what happens to everybody when they're older. And that, you know, you, you could see the difference in the two brothers so uh Bean bros i I love the story mm-hmm. it's 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 a great story people love it um
0: yeah it reminds me a little bit of not my proudest story but I won best or i won player of the year my first year in ta- in tackle football but not because I was the best player but because I quit and then like three games later they convinced me to come back just because i because I just didn't mm-hmm. want to get tackled and stuff so they they get it it was like a participation award but like at the time I, I didn't understand it but there really was some validity to like what you're saying is this this idea that pushing yourself and learning kind of what your what your limits are you're never going to know what your limits are if you don't test them right um to not to be overly morbid but i if you've ever read those interviews where they interview folks that are either um in hospice or um towards the last stages of their life and a very common theme among them is you know for folks that aren't happy maybe they're just talking about like man i i for lack of a better term i wish i had pushed myself i wish i had taken that leap or that risk or i wish Mm. i had seen that thing through and so whether it's writing or sports it's it's not about you know it's not about did i ever make it in the Major leagues, or did I ever become a best-selling author? It's like, no, did I try my hardest? Because if you tried your hardest and it doesn't, you don't make it, then that's fine. You don't have any regrets. Like things just you had, li- you know, life and God had other plans for you. But if you just keep quitting everything, then that's yep. a different story entirely. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, and, and kind of ties into made me think. You know, another you know another thing going on that, in, in the story being brothers is is I'm selling the '70s. I'm selling what it was like to be a kid before computers were invented, and when everybody didn't win a prize, you know, where you know adults, you know, every, you know, you respected adults. If the guy next door, you would be in a pain in the butt and he kicked you in the butt, you know, your parents didn't get upset about it because he was an adult and he was monitoring you. Today it's, kids I think are sheltered so much and, they're, and they're, they're, they have to win, they have to get the award. You know, when we grew up, it wasn't that way. You know, it, it just—it it, wasn't—it it wasn't perfect. It wasn't by 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 a stretch. But you know, when you earned it, you earned it. You got it, and if you didn't get it, then you you know you didn't get it, and, and that's it. It was it, it was a great time period to grow up. It really was.
0: I'm immediately thinking of this you talk about like earning something in fairness. I think we kind of lose concept of like what's fair and what's not. There's this AT and T commercial that's out right now um it's got this that lady with the the brunette lady that's in every single at&t commercial where people come in and look at the phones or whatever there's a new one out where she gets she has two siblings one's a little bit older than the other one's a young kid yes and she gives them each yep. a sucker yeah. and then the little girl who's so adorable is like that's not fair says who like it's a gift gifts like if i give you a gift and then i give somebody else a gift and they're of different value you don't have the right to nitpick because it's a gift and by by the very definition of a gift like right. you're not owed anything right and so it's just it's crazy that that is the lexicon of like what is owed to us in society like what we believe is is like the the kind of truce behind like we are owed things has become so ingrained in us that that stupid ad that was <laughs> i feel like i'm taking crazy pills because that ad is like incorrect but yet it's like supposed to be a heartwarming moment so um um, i'm getting myself worked up (laughs) thinking about because because you're right you're 100 right is it's you know and there and there is i feel like there's some validity in the how younger generations are treated um and some of the barriers that are set up but you're right there the in, in instances where there's no winners and losers and there's no lessons about hard work that is extremely dangerous and Um,
1: I agree. I agree
0: 100%.
1: I talk about that extensively in Being Brothers. It's it's actually, it's, Being Brothers is a story within a story within a story. One of the stories is there's a screenwriter and he's writing a movie called Being Brothers. And so you're reading it along with him. And the narrator is explaining his thoughts as he's reading it. And he's, mm -hmm. you know, and, and how he wrote it. And and so I'm constantly going back. I'm talking about the music of the era, and I'm talking about you know the ethics of the times, and you know uh, you know I capitalize neighborhood because I, I consider it another character. You mm-hmm. know it, the neighborhood back then was its own thing. It was like it was almost like it was alive. Um, you know be, the, the neighborhood itself. But um, yeah, the seventies were were a beautiful period. You know you learn by doing. You know today when kids are born. Uh, you know, you buy them those cars with the electric motors in them. You know, we built we built our cars. We went down to the to the vacant lots and we found baby carriers and we ripped the wheels off and we got two by fours and we nailed them together and put a milk box on there and a rope and we and we and we pushed each other down the hill. You know, we made those wagons. We painted them. We you know they were you know it wasn't just given. It, it was. You know, you smacked your hand with the you know, you got splinters and you hit your hammer with you know, your finger with the hammer. Nothing fun about that, but in the end you built that wagon. You know, and you did yeah. it with friends, you know. It it was it was a whole different experience. Yeah. You know, you did it as a team. Today it's like, well, whose father's gonna buy or whose mom and mother's gonna buy the nicest one. But anyway, maybe that's a maybe yeah. that's a story for for another day.
0: Yeah, times are times are wildly different. I mean, in my in my youth, that aspect of society didn't exist, but at least playing outside still existed. Mm-hmm. Um, I live in a neighborhood where there's a lot of young families and you just don't see kids out in the street. In fact, I commented to my wife the other day when, the first time I saw kids throwing a football in the street. I lived in this house for years, had never seen. I've seen kids like in their front yard or whatever, like, you know, helping put away the groceries. So, like, I know they're there, but they're not playing outside. And it right. took several years to see that so it's interesting it's you know and i'm sure there are things that they that they'll be able to carry on to their into their adulthood that maybe we didn't have values or things they do well but it's hard to see like yeah i feel like it's a it's a tendency to just look back on in in where, whatever time we grew up in and say like that we had it all figured out back then maybe yeah. we did
1: <laughs> i'm not sure if i love the direction of the times but um you know, hey, I, I think every generation must say that about about the one before. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know. It's a rite um, of passage.
0: Well, before we kind of wind things down, I had one question that I, I had to ask you. I was, I was going to try to work it in during when we were talking about Boycott the Yankees. Um, Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Joe DiMaggio. Start one, bench one, and cut one.
1: Uh, Babe Ruth is the starter. Lou Gehrig is on the bench and Joe DiMaggio is cut.
0: I, I don't know enough to, to argue with you. I just wanted to see if that was um, going to be sacrilegious to like throw, <laughs> you have to cut one of these guys.
1: It is. I, you know, you gave me the option and, you know, uh, Joe DiMaggio is, is a big, uh, you know, is a huge guy in our, in our world. You know, I'm, I'm all Italian. Uh, so he, he was like a hero you know, and the things that he did, you know, we can go on ramp. But when you look at, when you look for, you know, nobody could touch Babe Ruth. There's nobody who's ever going to be better than him. I, You know, I don't care. I don't care. You know, I don't think anybody will ever be as good as Babe Ruth. When you yeah. look at his statistics, it, it's superhuman. It's, it, you know, that's going to come around once. That's it. And then when you look at, and when, when you look at uh, uh, Lou Gehrig's stats, I mean, he batted in, he batted behind Babe Ruth. He batted fourth. So Babe Ruth had the most home runs out of anybody for, for years and years and years and years. So how many times did he get up on base and the bases were empty? And he yeah. still, like his RBI some years were like 175, 200. How did he do that? You know, he played all those games in a row. He was, he was another superhuman. And if he didn't die so young you know who, who knows what what Lou Garrick would have accomplished
0: yeah um, you watch the speed corrected photos of like batting practice and it just looks so different than baseball today and I'm always with every sport whether it's basketball or, or football or everything I'm always watching guys like that and thinking like what would they be like if they went through the regiment of today's day would they would they be significantly better would they how would they do with today's competition? Are you kind of of the mindset that Babe Ruth would have been dominant in any time era? Yeah. Yeah. Without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah. Without a doubt. As a Cowboys fan, I watched some of the guys like in the sixties and stuff. And I'm like, like I recognize that they're elite compared to their competition back then, but I don't know if like, I can't, I watch Aaron Rodgers, and then I watch Roger Stallback, and I'm like, Stallback doesn't have that arm, you know? It's so it's just a fascinating kind of just conversation. I think it's like the, you talk about going back to board of born for the game, like being great. And I think it's, it's a sports fans always want to debate who is the greatest among eras. Right. And, uh, it's a, it's a fun conversation for me anyways. You know, if you go
1: back and you look, you know, and I, I go on YouTube for, for different, you know, things, and you know, um, I recently—I'm not a huge basketball fan. Certainly not a, a Boston Celtics fan. You know, in New York, you're not anything to do with Boston. You hate. But I was watching Larry Bird. I don't care whatever that man played in. He would be—he would be the best in the league, no matter no matter what he did. I, you cannot believe the confidence, the ability of that guy. You know. Yeah. I never watched him play when he played, but if you do, do, I don't know if you have you ever gone to YouTube and and watched Larry Bird's highlights.
0: Oh yeah, one one too many times. Yeah, he's I mean, awesome. the guy was.
1: I mean, you know, I mean, how did you how did you play against him? How did you play yeah. against him? Nobody talked more smack than him. Nobody, pretty amazing. The confidence so, you know, level you,
0: just insane. Yeah, yeah,
1: and, and and I think you know you go to that question. There are a couple of people who. Uh, who would be the best in era in, in any era? You know, in any era. Um,
0: but. Yeah, translates to any era. He's in my top five. My my dream starting five. He makes the lineup. Um, I think I I always tell people it's uh, Steph Jordan, LeBron Bird and Wilt Chamberlain. That's my my own dream lineup. Anyways, um, that's a pretty
1: good team right there.
0: Well, um, Mike, I really appreciate you joining us. Um, it's been a wonderful conversation. Um, I'm glad we got to. Get the the Riverside thing figured out and get, got you on the call.
1: It was fun. I enjoyed, you know, it's great talking sports. It's great talking books. It's great talking eras, you know. Yeah. Um, the older you get, the more you can kind of, you have a lot to look back on. You can reference that stuff, you know, because you yep. lift it, you know. But anyway, 100%. it was a pleasure.
0: Before you before you go off, why don't you tell everybody where they can find uh, Born for the Game?
1: I I, own, I sell exclusively on Amazon. So if you're interested in any of my books, Madness, The Man Who Changed Basketball, Boycott the Yankees, A Cold Action by a lifelong Yankees fan, Being Brothers, which I talked about, you know, a lot, and Born for the Game, you just go into um, Amazon and just put my name, Mike DeLucia, D-E-L-U-C-I-A, or if you remember any of the titles. But if if you go to Mike DeLucia, my books will pop, and then you could, you know, look at them and read and see which ones you like
0: good stuff. We'll put that all in the show notes. Thanks again, Mike. Appreciate it. You got it. I appreciate it. Great talking to you.